Standard Issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 173 of the Standard Issue podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan and seagulls stole my pasty. Of course they did. What kind of pasty? It was a cheese and onion pasty and it was delicious. They did this weird manoeuvre where one of them started crying, then one landed on my head, Jen, and three others just sailed off with my pasty. And I <laughs> thought it was hilarious. I couldn't gang stop mugging. laughing. It was a gang mugging by a block of seagulls, not the band. Gary was furious because he usually gets what bit of my pasty I don't eat. So he was like, I've been mugged off. Last time I was at the seaside, I went to Cornwall, didn't I, in May, to see my cousin Nadia. I witnessed a small child being mugged of his ice cream cone by seagulls. And I laughed, which is apparently not the right (laughs) thing to do in that scenario. But I thought it was really funny because nobody noticed. His parents didn't notice. And he was just like... (laughs) That happens in Brighton quite a lot. They have, I mean, they are like really aggressive in Brighton and also they're big because they get fed well by the tourists. Yeah, that's almost my worst nightmare. Mick. Yeah, I thought <laughs> of you. Bird on head. I thought, Jane oh, happy. horrible. Oh my God. Did you see that photo of Angela Merkel? Yes. <laughs> no, what does she have oh, on her head? <laughs> she, she'd gone to a bird sanctuary. Yeah. She's asking for it then. <laughs> oh my God, she was covered in them. A bird sanctuary sounds like the last place on earth. I would want to be other than like possibly like the Pennywise the Clown Sanctuary or something like that. I just want <laughs> yeah. to say why. I'd been feeling quite sorry for the seagulls because there were loads of signs along the beachfront that said, as if the seagull was talking, please don't feed us. It's bad for our health. And also it makes us aggressive. And I was like, I bet the seagulls are like, who fucking let Jeff be spokesbird? <laughs> you know, he shouldn't be chatting for us. And then I was like, oh, hang on. My sympathies have gone. I'm Hannah Dunleavy, and I'd like to reaffirm there is no standard issue podcast shortage. Do not panic listen to all our episodes. I've been queuing on ACAS for four hours. (laughs) (laughs) More on that later. I'm Jen Offord, and I have written a book. This is brand new information, Jen, even though it's not. (laughs) I've I've even talked about it on this podcast before. Jen, I I think you should call it the year of the Robin. Well, Mickey, it's funny you said that. That's what it's called. And you can yes. pre-order it now if you'd like to pre-order it. Just saying. It's about Charlton Athletic and football and family and the entire world. And it's great. It's exciting stuff. Thanks. Later on, I catch up with comedian Jambi McGrath to talk humour from hardship, uncomfortable laughter and her new Radio 4 series, Jambi McGrath, Becoming Jambi. In Jenny Off the Blocks, I chat to boxer, model, activist and now author of new book, Not Without a Fight, Ramla Ali. And in Rated or Dated, we're a bit confused by the message as we watch 1996's First Wives Club. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but first, don't panic, don't panic, but we're doomed. It's time for the Bush Telegraph. Strap in. Bush Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph. All the news about bodies with vaginas that's fit to print. Count me in. Oh, Mickey, I'm furious. Uh-huh. I've said it before, and I know, depressingly, I'm going to have to say it again, and again, and again. Mm-hmm. But I absolutely understand the importance of ensuring that trans people get the healthcare they deserve. And, vitally, understand what the right healthcare is for them. And if that means including the words trans men and non-binary people every time you mention women, so be it. But the Lancet, the fucking Lancet, 
just called me a body with a vagina and I am not down with that. Agreed. I mean, I'm, I'm genuinely struggling to see what the difference is between that and fuck meat. I really am. But it's especially galling that the Lancet, the fucking Lancet, <laughs> has put this euphemism on its front page in a quote that refers to a certain percentage of the population being poorly served by medicine since time immemorial. For those of you who haven't seen it, here is that quote. Historically, the anatomy and physiology of bodies with vaginas have been neglected. And, spoiler alert, there's nothing in the piece that that quote comes from that illuminates the culture necessary to fail half the human race so badly and so often as succinctly as printing those three words on the front cover. Seeing women as sentient fuckholes or animated incubators with no inner life and not deserving of quality of life is why we've been subjected to a barrage of misguided, misjudged and misogynist treatment that has caused pain and suffering all over the world throughout history. And guess what? It's still going on. I know women who might still be with us if their symptoms have been treated sooner rather than written off as a result of their age, their poor pain tolerance and in one particularly egregious case, their hypochondria. It's increasingly common to hear the words, when someone tells you who they are, believe them. But I'd like to remind you that sentence started very differently. When someone shows you who they are, believe them. I see you, the Lancet, clear as fucking day. Hear, hear. And it's, it's like medical training is pretty clear that people are not body parts, they're not yeah. the disease, and body is used for... A dead body or animals. Animals have bodies with vaginas. And I've said this before, and I'll say it again and again and again. Inclusive language needs to include, not obfuscate, not confuse. And also that sentence that you quoted, the quote that's on the front cover, goes on to include the word women. And yet they made an editorial choice to put that specific quote on the front cover which sure looks like endorsement of demeaning and insulting and dehumanising language to me. Yeah. The piece does also contain the word menstruators. Yeah. Which I'm, I'm soon to leave that club. So I'd be interested to know what I'm going to be referred to as now. Dried up old hag. Oh, I quite liked sentient foothole. Can I use that for you? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I've been using that behind your back anyway. <laughs> Hannah, are you going anywhere nice this week? <laughs> well, I am now. <laughs> are you going anywhere? At all? I mean, why bother when the current petrol shortage and queues right round the North Circular take us all on a fun trip back to the 1970s? Perhaps, dear listener, you're stuck in a tailback with us in your ears this very moment waiting for petrol. It, it's not fun, though, is it? No. No. Thanks to a shortage of drivers and subsequent panic buying, BP has admitted that a third of its petrol stations have run out of the main two grades of fuel, while the Petrol Retailers Association, which represents almost 5,500 independent outlets, says 50% to 90% of its members had reported running out. I'm not sure why there's such a huge margin in those figures, but it did predict that the rest would soon follow suit. I actually spent a bit of time trying to work out why that, what might cause that huge margin, and I thought... Maybe it's ones that ran out but now have fuel again. But even that wouldn't explain 50 to 90%. 
Look, hopefully our listeners didn't come here for maths. <laughs> and as much as it's annoying that our Dunleavy spent her Sunday driving around various Cambridge petrol stations so she wouldn't be stranded home alone all week, or that my trip to B&Q took about ten times longer than it should have done because the store was near a petrol station, there are even more serious repercussions. Doctors, carers, fire brigades, ambulances, police all need to fill up to do their vital work. So the big question is, is this because of Brexit or is it because of the pandemic? Oh, come on, women. Yeah. You know, you don't have to choose. It's our familiar pal, Brexdemic. Two years old and just like a toddler, smashing up life as we knew it. Let's start with what I'm going to call thank you, Brussels. Because while there's evidence of HGV driver shortages across the whole of Europe, the UK has been among the hardest hit by the problem because post-Brexit. Many European drivers went back to their home countries or decided to work elsewhere. The UK no longer being part of the single market means additional border bureaucracy and therefore too much hassle for many of them to drive in and out of our glorious sovereignty. <laughs> also, given many drivers are paid by the mile or kilometre and the pound has dropped against the euro since Brexit, delays cost cash and it had become less cash to start with. But enough of my Remainer smuggery, eh? Lolling it up as this shit purely affects Brexiteers, as we'd planned all along, mwah, mm. etc. Because COVID is certainly also part of it. The pandemic has created a large backlog in HGV driver tests, so it's been impossible to get enough new drivers up and driving. According to the HGV industry, there were 25,000 fewer candidates passing their test in 2020 than in 2019. Do try not to panic, though. One, because it doesn't help. <laughs> I'm not two, even here anymore. I'm in a queue for more She's petrol. in a queue. Two, because, Hannah, no, come back, come back. Mm. Our fearless leader, Prime Minister Bumblefuck McArseface, has an emergency plan. And that plan is pretty much every 1980s Hollywood action movie. Call in the army! Mm. Yet, later today, Monday offs as we record, the Prime Minister will gather senior members of the Cabinet to scrutinise, oh, I fucking love what they call things, Operation Escalin, which could see hundreds of soldiers scramble to deliver fuel to petrol stations running dry across the country. And, you know, with Boris Johnson in charge, I'm expecting each and every one of those soldiers to look like Clive Dunn from Dad's Army. I uh, I googled the word Escalin to find out what it meant and I could find no re reference to it other than it was a name but then it didn't tell me any more than that. Did you try the dark web? Maybe there was more <laughs> yeah, info there. Maybe, yeah. <laughs> anyway, I'm going to leave you with some words from our Transport Secretary Grant Shapps who on Sunday's Andrew Marshall said, fuck off, there's loads of petrol. I'm paraphrasing just slightly. I saw someone and I can't remember who it was. It might have been Grant Shapps. I was just doom scrolling through Twitter, and they said the good news is that because we're no longer part of the EU, we should be able to employ people easier to solve this problem caused by us not being part of the EU, which oh. just seemed like a bit like stabbing someone in order that you could say, hey, let me take you to the hospital and be the hero in all of this. What have I told you about doom scrolling? It's not good for you. I know, I know. I was sitting in a fucking traffic jam because, because this is the thing. I couldn't find any petrol, but when I tried to drive home, I got caught in a traffic jam. And it turned out at the end of it, there was petrol. A traffic jam that followed a rainbow. Yeah, almost, yeah. So, Mickey, you know manta rays? Know them. I fucking love them. <laughs> I, uh, I, I really struggle. I once saw an episode of, I don't know what it was. I think it was uh, Anna Dex 
Saturday night takeaway or something. And they were offering someone a free holiday where they could go and they could sing monkeys and manta rays. <laughs> and I have never been able to say either word without them popping into my head again. But yeah, there you go. Manta rays. The, they're the things, if you don't know, that look like swimming ghosts with a smiley face on the underside. The things that suck up a load of the ocean and then filter out the water, leaving just the sweet, sweet, and by that I mean really grim-sounding plankton. Plankton. Delicious. Well, it turns out that manta rays are very well designed. <laughs> I'm really sorry, Sarah, if you're listening to this. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's been such a lovely run. <laughs> Manta rays are very well designed, and by that I mean, of course, evolved. So well, in fact, the scientists in America have created a filtration system based on manta rays, which will prevent millions of tonnes of... I said it in my head, though. Will prevent (laughs) millions of tonnes of microplastics making it into our seas and oceans and causing all sorts of problems for the creatures that live there. Previous attempts to solve the problem with, essentially, big sieves hasn't worked as they get clogged. Because sieves, right? Yeah, yeah. Just end up throwing them away because they got yeah, covered in flour. Yeah, exactly <laughs> that. I've got like a, a flour sifter, which is like a really old 1950s one, and it's just caked in it. It's horrible. Anyway, by mimicking what goes on inside manta rays' mouths at feeding time, scientists are confident that they can cut pollution and improve life for all ocean wildlife, including, guess what? Go for it. Manta rays. And sea monkeys. <laughs> I don't know if sea monkeys actually live in the sea. That is excellent news. Isn't it? It's really good. I like to hope that when they come up with the filtration system, the building is going to look like the underside of a a manta ray. Yeah, that would be... But just like a little smiley face. Oh, they're so joyful. Yeah. More news next week. Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that time of the week where I've just read an article on the BBC website titled Sabina Nessa Killing, Does Following the Rules Keep Women Safe? The rules? Well, credit to journalist Bethan Bell, who comes to the conclusion, no, clearly not. Somehow managing to resist the temptation to just write, stick your victim blaming rules up your shit pipe <laughs> in block capitals, which is my answer to the question, in case you were wondering. So a man has been arrested on suspicion of murder by police investigating the death of 28-year-old primary school teacher Sabina Nessa, who was killed on a five-minute walk from her house to a pub through a well-used public park at about 8.30pm on Friday the 17th of September. I've mentioned Sabina's route and the time of day because, well, it all sounds pretty safe and within those women rules for being outside, doesn't it? And yet, here we are again. Just six months since Sarah Everard was murdered by a policeman as she walked along a main road at the relatively early hour of 9pm wearing sensible clothes. And just 15 months after sisters Bieber Henry and Nicole Smallman, who had been texting their partners and had organised a taxi to pick them up, were murdered together, stabbed multiple times in a public park. It's almost as if the rules mean fuck all, eh? Mm. It's almost as if all that extra mental and emotional energy women expend without even really thinking about it, modifying our behaviour, restricting our movements so we're not attacked or killed, means absolutely nothing to the man and it is pretty much always a man that decides to attack or kill us. And you know what? When I was 15, I was attacked, walking home on my own in the dark. 
at 4.30pm because we live in a country where that's a thing for four months of the fucking year. Mm. But that didn't stop a whole host of people telling me off for being a silly girl or me feeling like one, despite having to fight off a man who told me he was going to rape me. Ah, oh, Mick. And I know, I know, I sound like an angry, stuck record because it was only six months ago that I said pretty much exactly the same thing. And I bang on all the time about how tackling violence against women and girls is only ever going to be possible if we not only name, but accept where it's coming from. It doesn't just come from out of the ether. It's male violence against women and girls. As Beth and Bell says in her very measured, much less sweary, well worth your time article, no matter how well meant, perhaps safety hints for women run the risk of offering an excuse to the man who murders a woman. And society as a whole, and women as individuals, owes him no excuse. Hello, I am joined on the Zoom by comedian and author Jambi McGrath. Jambi, hello. Hey, how are you? I'm fine, thanks. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. I mean, it's a very British question, how are you? But it has become so loaded over the past year and a half. Like, how are you? (laughs) You know, I asked my dry cleaner, how are you? And he told me. And I was like, half an hour later, I was like, oh, I really need to go. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, you should never tell someone how you actually are. I know. So as a comedian, and you have been doing this for a long time now, I would like to know what made you, and indeed makes you, want to make people laugh? Uh, I became a comedian because I was a teacher first. And when you're teaching the centre of attention, you realise that people are interested in what you have to say. Mm -hmm. So that kind of was the beginning. And I like to see laughter on people's faces. I like to see that I'm making people happy. And so it's ego and it's also the fact that it validates my abilities as well. So it sounds narcissistic, you know, but it's everything. And also it's like a drug where when you stood in front of an audience and people are laughing and you're saying something else, that we feel of that. It feels like a, a proper drug. And when you're off stage, you're like, God, I want that again. I want that again. I like that I can actually write stuff that people can find interesting and people can also find funny. So that validates me as a person. You talk in your comedy very openly about your life. It's where lots of your material comes from, like with most comedians. And you grew up in Kenya and I've heard you say in interviews that when you first moved to the UK, you were really shocked at the negative depictions of Africa. And so you set yourself the mission to try to change those perceptions. Have they changed? Are they changing? It just feels like an uphill struggle Mm -hmm. because I realised that the portrayal of Africa by the Western media began a very, very long time ago from when they did the films about Africans, you know, and we were portrayed as just like these very black people, some of us are, with big red lips who were like caricatures. Mm -hmm. And that has stuck in people's minds. Even children, parents feed that to their children. They feed the same narrative to their children, not knowing that they're doing the same. Like I was um, just walking and I saw a woman that I know very well, who I think is quite liberal. She's a lecturer. And she said, oh, my God, so nice to see you. I was talking to my son. He was asking me about, you know, hunger and stuff like that. So I was talking about Africa and how people are starving in Africa. And I was like, when were you last in Africa? She's never been to Africa. Mm-hmm. So this narrative still continues. And I just feel like I can't help myself, but this is what I want to talk about. 
it started off as a, a propaganda machine to make uh, white people okay with what happened in Africa, you know, the slavery, uh, with uh, colonialism. So if we were portrayed as less human or thick or uncultured, then white people would not feel the same sympathy if, if black people have been whipped and beaten and tortured. And that narrative still stays to this day. And it is very difficult to shift. But I feel that I have a platform and I can talk about it. But people are still very ignorant when it comes to Africa. And I make a point of taking my children to Africa every year so that they can actually see what it's like. I got a call from my daughter's school and they said that she had walked out of class. And I was like, she's usually a very good, sensible girl. Mm -hmm. You know, she wouldn't just walk out of class. And she walked out of class and she walked out of the school. I wanted to know what happened. Why would you even do that? She said, mommy, we had a lecture. So this man came and stood in front of our class and he was telling us about the work that he does. He was telling us that he raises money to help Africans and that African men are generally very lazy. Women that do all the work and she just stood that and she left. Now, me, my daughter, she goes to Africa almost every year. She knows my family. She knows our family, friends, businessmen, her cousins, all these people, not a single one fits the stereotype that they try to portray. Mm -hmm. And yet these people are going around schools, giving this narrative to children. And I feel that I have a platform and I can talk about it. And it's interesting because the moment I raise this, you can see people's faces are like, oh my gosh, (laughs) wow, she's going to go there. Oh shit, (laughs) she's going to talk about this. So as well as laughter, do you get that sense of discomfort in the audience? Oh, absolutely. Like yesterday, I was at a gig and I went on stage and I, I always start by saying I'm from Africa and people just went <laughs> and a woman who was sat right in front of me went and I said oh my god you're so shocked that an African comes on stage and everybody starts laughing oh my gosh it feels like thanks to Brexit and to powerful movements such as Black Lives Matter that has been in the media like quite a lot over the past two years in comparison to previously we are in an era where the British people are whether they want to or not or I should say whether we want to or not having to re-examine who we are as a people and what that means in relation to the rest of the world and I think it's it's very discomforting for a lot of people but it is proving pretty right picking for you so I'd like you to tell me about your show Accidental Coconut please. So it's called Accidental Coconut because actually someone went through the trouble of coming up with a very apt definition of someone who is like me. And the reason I am what is called a coconut, it is because the British invaded my country. When they invaded my country, they deported my family from their land. Mm -hmm. And when they deported my family from their land, they were forced to... They were recruited into forced labor. Basically, my grandmother was into forced labor. They were forced also by the missionaries because the missionaries were the groomers. They groom people, whereas the the, the government is doing the stealing from people. So they were groomed to take their children and send them to boarding schools. Sending children to boarding school erases their cultural identity and opens them to brainwashing. So uh, as a child, I was taken to boarding school 
And I found myself being taught about white men, dead white men, mm-hmm. <laughs> not even alive white men, but dead white men and their conquest and how great these white men were and how they won the world wars and all of this. But what I should have been learning is about my tribe, the Agekoyo people, the people who are gender fluid, the people who were, you know, liberal, the people who permitted women to marry other women, the people who were inclusive of everybody in a society and nobody was allowed to be poor. So the standard of living for everybody was exactly the same. Mm -hmm. The people who had the purest form of democracy and what the British did was they wiped all of that out. They put in place greedy bastards who are to govern because that's what they like. They like greedy bastards. I like the technical term. That's good. Yeah. (laughs) Like fill in the phone. Are you a greedy bastard? Yeah, tick. <laughs> Are you self-serving? Tick. Okay, you can get the job. And this is exactly what they did. That's what I should have been learning in school. I don't actually care about World War One. I. I don't care about World War Two. This is what in Africa we are being taught. I, I wasn't taught about how Kenyans got their independence. I didn't actually know how we managed to outwit Britain with the bombs and the soldiers who are equipped with the latest, you know, warfare. But yet all we had access to was machetes and we managed to outwit them and get our independence. That's what I should have been learning as a child. But so someone like me with all of that and reading in it, Blyton and all of the stuff that we were, you know, Shakespeare, Thomas Hardy, this is all the stuff that I was reading. And so when I start behaving like a white person, you know, ask is talking like the queen because this is how we were taught to speak. One would like a burger. <laughs> and then people call me a coconut, you know, without accepting the role that the British have played in my life. That's what I, that accidental coconut is all about. You know, it's about how, you know, it was not our intention to be polluted with all of this. And yet, when you are polluted, instead of being held up high as, oh, this is what we wanted out of colonialism, we wanted to make them British, and she is British, she speaks English, you know, she thinks like a white man, and uh, she's a coconut, you know, this is it, you're told this is what you're supposed to be, and then you're insulted (laughs) when you become that person. Now, Jamie, I'd say, like, all of that is, it's so important to talk about, and it's so good that people are actually talking about it and accepting it, well, a lot of people are accepting it a lot more, but, I mean, it's fucking horrific rather than funny, so I would like to know how you dig the humour out of that. There's humour in everything. You will find humour in every single thing, it is horrific and it makes uncomfortable uh, listening to, but there's laughter. I remember when uh, uh, somebody uh, reviewed it, they said, this is like an intelligent university lecture, but with loads of jokes. And I was like, <laughs> like a comedy show. <laughs> Obviously, when I do this in an interview, it sounds quite heavy. But, uh, you know, I dish it out in little digestible packets. <laughs> you know, I don't just drop the one lump sum. <laughs> So you've just said that there's humour in everything and like I've, I've heard you touch on some difficult subjects like the ones you've just talked about but also stuff like FGM and you've made it funny. So I would like to know, do you think there is anything that comedy cannot or should not touch? This is a really interesting one because um, when you look at some people who say that in comedy you can't talk about 
anything these days. You can talk about anything these days. And the people who are saying that are generally white men who want to do racist stuff. Mm -hmm. And this is why they cannot talk about this thing because, you know, they're talking about black people in such a derogatory manner, then of course it's, it's going to cause people to, to say something about it. You can talk about whatever. Even a white man can talk about black people, but you're not going to be making fun of slavery <laughs> because yeah. from your position, you're kicking down, you know? So you can make fun of anything, but it depends on which angle you're taking. If you're sort of relying on the old racist stereotypes, then that, that's not going to work. But you can talk, you know, I've talked about, I've talked about my, my mother growing up in a concentration camp, you know, uh, my grandmother being recruited in hard labor, breaking rocks all day, <laughs> you know, and you still find humor in, in, in all of this. You got to, because after all, it's a comedy show. Yeah. I want my comedy shows to have meaning. I want people to actually know what my grandmother went through. I want people to know what my mother went through. Uh, but I still want people to laugh. And I think the easiest way of telling people this kind of information is by laughter. So people uh, at the end of my show, they come out and say, oh, my God, I learned so much, but I also laughed so much. And I was, was also so quite uncomfortable. <laughs> you tick, <know>. tick, tick, tick. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, this is it. It's like eating a curry with spices. You're like, ah. You know, this is so nice, but it stings. Ooh. Yeah, I need a drink of water. Ooh. Yeah, this is exactly what it is. <laughs> You've mentioned in there your mum and your grandma, and I'm not wishing to be reductive at all, but when you talk about your family, and obviously you wrote your memoir, and that is pretty stark and harrowing, but it is the women in your family, yourself included, who are... I mean, it's the word survivors. They are very strong, very resilient, very supportive of each other. Well, again, all of this is to do with colonialism. And the reason I talk about my grandmother is because women were often separated from men. Like when they were taken into those concentration camps, men were taken to detention centers and women were left with children. So because my grandmother didn't have um, a husband, so he was never present. So my grandmother was the matriarch of the family. Mm -hmm. And of course, when my mother, you know, who I suppose had the strength to flee and leave my father became that matriarch, you know? So for us, my father was quite a horrendous person and a very violent person. So the matriarchs are the people that I have looked to, you know? My grandmother, even now, my my grandmother's clan, you know, we call the, the clan of my grandmother because she is a person that was responsible for all of us. And my grandmother was a comedian as well. Oh. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So uh, people used to actually sneak from their hearts in, in these camps that they were living in and they would go to her hut and she would imitate the white soldiers and uh, <laughs> and you know do jokes about them like imitate them I mean it was a macabre what they were doing but she'd be walking around you know like come here go there you know like imitating what they do and all of this the women would be on the floor laughing and some of them were actually caught and punished you know one of the punishments if you're caught was um uh, you know, she was just sneaking back from my grandmother's and she actually never made it to her place because she was caught. They used to take them to the, you know, they had uh, watchtowers. Mm -hmm. So they would take them to the watchtower and make them sit there all night with no clothes on because it's quite high and it's very cold. <clears throat> and so they were punished. But the very next day she was still there. So there was, these women were very defiant. Mm -hmm. 
and so my grandmother and those women they used to write songs like very <laughs> derogatory songs you know wicked wicked songs that they wrote because every morning they had they were frog march to to the labor fields where they would spend all day digging and they would be singing <laughs> they would be singing these songs and these songs were insulting to the soldiers so like you know, they would write a, a song about a particular soldier who was knock-kneed or something like that. And they'll be singing about the knock-kneed soldier and whatever. And it had an impact on them because the soldiers actually complained to the British government that these women were hurting their feelings. Oh, God. And so singing, I know, and so singing was outlawed. Oh, God. You know, they, so fragile, <laughs> just so fragile. Well, this is it. It's like the irony of the whole thing, that they could not cope. <laughs> with the women singing derogatory songs about them whilst they're imprisoning them. It's like... Will nobody think of the men's feelings? Come on now. <laughs> poor man. This poor man. So my grandmother was, uh, was a comedian. So they would, even to this day, if you speak to anybody about Helena, and they'll say, oh, she was so funny. She used to entertain dance. And, you know, she had... She, obviously she cared but she didn't care you know she was she was just who she was and I suppose maybe it was her way of coping but I suppose you know even she she must have had the funny bone because you know even when I think of my grandmother we all just think how funny she was you know she just said what came to her mouth and it was always very funny it's in your blood then it's absolutely in your blood <laughs> it must be it must be and I mentioned it before, your memoir, Through the Leopard's Gaze, covers lots of stuff that went on in your family. You're really candid. It's incredible. And you are revisiting this for your new Radio 4 series, Jambi McGrath, Becoming Jambi. I wondered yeah. what makes you want to share such personal and clearly painful stories? And does it still have an effect on you? Because it must be hard, like bringing it all back up again. I never set out to share anything because I'm actually a very private person. Yeah, and you right. wouldn't think it from my reading my memoir, you wouldn't think it. And I actually felt very uncomfortable uh, about sharing some of the stuff that I shared. My radio show is called uh, Jambi McGrath Becoming Jambi because it's about how I went through that journey. Because after that event of when I was 13 and my father beat me and I ran away, I just wanted everything to go away all of that memory of the uh, everything to go away and for a time it did and I was very happy and a lot of my friends were very shocked even to read people who have known me for years were extremely shocked to read this because they were like how come we didn't know about this how come you never talked about this but for me the trauma of having or thinking about coming face to face with my father brought out all that trauma and people who are, are traumatized and they don't know it yet, it usually kind of lays hidden for a very long time. It's like a disease. And then just one thing triggers it, and it all comes out. And I just felt that I had to give the story of what it was like to live in my family, you know, the fear of my father, the things that he would do to my mother, and all of that stuff. It was necessary and an important story to tell. My mother labored for a whole year telling me her side of the story whilst she was very, 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 very slowly dying from Parkinson's. And she would tell me the story and she would be dripping with sweat because it completely drained her. Mm -hmm. And I would say, shall we stop? She would say no. 
And I realized my mother never had anybody to listen to her. She never had therapy. She never had any of this. My grandmother went to her grave like that. Even some of the things that I reveal in the book, and I don't want to say, obviously, because I want people to, obviously, I don't want to spoil things for people who are reading. Some of them are very shameful about the origins of my family. But this was done to my mother, and I wanted my mother's story to be heard. So it is a necessary evil to open up, because I never wanted to open up. I, I felt quite uncomfortable opening up. But for me, my discomfort was not the same as what my mother suffered or my grandmother. So and even I, I'm not going to say a lie. It was traumatic relieving all of this stuff. Mm-hmm. But I had no choice. I felt that I had no choice. I could not leave it inside of me. You know, like if you're, you have a runny stomach or something like that, you, you know, no matter how much you want to keep it in, you can't. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you're allowed to compare it to diarrhea, fine, but... <laughs> yeah. So, Jambi McGrath, Becoming Jambi, began on Radio 4 last week and is available on the iPlayer. Your show, Accidental Coconut, is at Soho Theatre from Monday the 4th to Saturday the 9th of October. And listeners, you can get tickets at SohoTheatre.com. Jambi, where can people find you on the socials? Jambi McGrath Comedy on Facebook. I'm on Instagram as The Hot African. And I'm on Twitter, Jambi McGrath. (laughs) Lovely. Thank you so, so much for chatting with me. Oh, thank you so much. I hope it's not too dark. (laughs) You play ball like a girl! Go on, do one, kid. Jenny off the blocks. I'm joined by boxer, model, activist and author of the new book, Not Without a Fight, Ramla Ali. Hello, Ramla. Hi, Jen. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. I'm delighted to be talking to you today. Can you tell us a little bit, first of all, about the book? Yes. So, this is an amazing book, if I do say so myself. (laughs) So there's like 10, 10 different stories and then, you know, 10 different lessons that I learned from the struggles that I had in the ring and out of the ring and everything that I learned from it. You know, I, th- I feel like some of the key messages that I'm proudest of is to to be brave, uh, to, to not be afraid to be yourself because, you know, like we live in this world of social media where, people are just filtering their photos or they're only posting their wins and never their losses. And, you know, what one thing that I wanted to put in the book is that it's okay to lose and it's okay to own your losses because, you know, when the wins do come, they're even more sweeter. So, yeah, just learning to be okay to be yourself and yeah, being brave. And I'm, I'm hoping in all of these lessons that I'm inspiring uh, anybody who reads it. It's not just a book that's for like athletes I feel like yes the lessons were that I learned were mainly within sport but I feel like these lessons can be transferable to anybody your story is really really interesting and it is very inspiring you are the first boxer to represent Somalia at the Olympics and the Women's World Championship. So you were born in Somalia, but you're London-raised and you came over to London as a refugee as a child. How did you even get into boxing in the first place? Because it was a bit tricky with your with your family, wasn't it? Yeah, no, it's very true. I mean, I, I got into boxing because I was bullied as a teenager. 
being overweight you know I didn't fit in I, and I stood out quite a bit in school so I my mum got me a gym membership to the local leisure centre to help me with my self-confidence and you know to just be a bit more positive within myself and from there I found a boxer size class and I just fell in love with the sport of boxing that's how I got into it and it's like you said like I hid it from my family um I felt like at that time I thought they wouldn't be supportive but now it's like a complete 360 my mom is so supportive you know there's 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 this story that's in in the book of the very first time my mum had called me before a competition I was just about to compete in Denmark and she called me to wish me good luck and to say you know that she was thinking of me and that you know she was going to pray that I I was safe and not be hurt and I think that was such an amazing feeling like me personally that the feeling I got during that conversation was better than the win that came in that competition in Denmark. Is that because of the feeling that she accepted you and what you were doing at last? And One thing that I realised, you know, so it's like you said, I went to the Olympic Games as the first uh, Somali person, male or female. I was the first person to go as any other sport apart from running. They've only ever sent runners. So it was like any other sport apart from running. So I was the first to do that. And for me doing that, was yes very very scary but at the same time it was very important because I feel like representation is so important you know I was the first to do it and yes it was very scary but what was most important was that you know as a young person you can't you can't be what you can't see mm. and they go out there and show you know young boys and girls who you know come from a similar background to me that you know, if I can do it, you can do it too. And I feel that was quite inspiring as well to, to a lot of young young people out there. So that kind of leads neatly into the Sisters Club. I saw you on the news the other day talking about your Sisters Club boxing school. Initially targeted for all religious minorities right. who felt uncomfortable training around men. It was also aimed at um, ethnic minorities mm-hmm. who found it quite hard to get access to sport and like women who'd suffered from domestic violence and domestic abuse and so I basically wanted to target these groups of women because I feel like they're they're quite vulnerable groups and I wanted them to have easy access to sport in a safe space like free of men and just somewhere that they could have fun you know learn to box and learn to defend themselves and that was the initial aim of starting Sisters Club. I wanted to ask about the domestic violence angle a little bit because you talk quite a lot in your book about power and the abuse of power. And I wondered if that was something that you felt quite strongly about because that is a theme that you you come back to a few times. So the, the thing with the domestic violence angle was I have a friend who I talk a little bit about in the book who was a victim of uh, sexual assault and I wanted to give her a safe space where she could feel like she could defend herself. And I think that, for me, that was the angle in why I opened up the doors to uh, women who suffered from this type of abuse. For me, it was really important to, to have someone who was so close to me feel safe. You know, just walking alone at night or just feeling safe in their own home or anything like that. I wondered if you had any thoughts on 
what more organisations could be doing to engage women from diverse backgrounds in sport? I feel like Sisters Club is such an amazing initiative, which is now a charity, because it, it gives, you know, vulnerable groups uh, the opportunity to gain access to sport. You know, when I was growing up, for example, I talk about this in the book, like I, I never felt like I could pursue a career in sport mm. because, you know, there's so many things against women in sport. Yeah. Like there's, there's a huge pay disparity and, you know, there's there's lack of funding for women. There's lack of endorsements and things like that. So as a woman, we never feel like we could get into sport and use it as a career. But like having these sorts of initiatives like Sisters Club, it, it shows women that, you know, it can be done. Like me being being the face of Sisters Club and pursuing a career in, in sport shows to other women that it can be done. And I feel like there needs to be loads more of these types of initiatives that are targeting women as a whole, but more specifically vulnerable groups as well. Mm. We've opened up loads of different locations now in London, hopefully taking it nationwide. But you can't attend Sisters Club if for whatever reason, you know, you can pick up the book and take inspiration from that as well. Because I talk a lot about this in the book. It's interesting that you mentioned equal pay because you do mention that in the book. You make the point, which I think is a fair point, but often like as a sort of card-carrying feminist, people will frown a bit when I say this. But the fact that women don't earn the same amount of money as men in sport is, as you point out, part of that is because we don't attract the same level of interest. But it's interesting to me because football is obviously like the best example of this i do think you can't justify paying female players the same amount as you can male players when they're not bringing in anywhere near the same level of interest i think obviously you invest in it and you try and get people to be interested in it and that's the way to do it but the point you make is that fans need to take a bit of responsibility for this as well and fans need to start coming and watching i wondered if you could tell me a little bit more about that feel like the reason why men get paid as much as they do um albeit a disgustingly huge amount of money there's such a high demand Mm. for them so like in boxing you know when the top 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 contenders are competing stadiums are packed are filled you know they attract so many pay-per-view buys and there's such a huge demand and that's why them getting paid as much as they do is justified i feel like when a woman competes not a lot of people go out and watch not a lot of people go out you know and you know watch her compete not a lot of it doesn't attract as, as much pay-per-view buys and we don't get paid as much because of it so what i the one thing I want to say is, obviously, I'm going to advocate for a woman to get paid the same as a man. We put in the same number of hours. We work just as hard. We get cut just as much, get black eyes, you know. But the thing is, is that there's not a huge demand to watch a woman compete. So one thing I want to say is to just get out there, support support women as much as you support men. Mm. Because we can do it just as good as they can we can we can showcase our talents just as much as they can we can put on a good fight just as much as they can so just come out and support us because when that changes i guarantee that a woman's pay will change as well yeah absolutely so i wanted to pick up on another theme of the book something that you talk about a little bit Brexit and the rise of hate crime. Your heritage is Somalian and obviously you did switch from representing England to representing Somalia. 
was that what stopped you from wanting to represent GB? Oh, no, no, not not at all. When I was representing England, I'd stopped being uh, asked to do competitions. It was a feeling of being rejected from being asked to do competitions. I'm very proud to be British, very, very proud. It's the only home I've ever known. I came to this country when I was about a year old, maybe even less than a year. So proud of everything that we do as a country. You know, I like how we came together when England just lost uh, the European final. Seeing things like that makes me so proud. But I feel like the reason why I chose to represent Somalia was nothing to do with that. It was purely because I feel like representation is so important to, to young boys and girls, especially in Africa, who feel like there isn't a way out. I wanted to inspire these young people and to show them, look, I come from a similar background to, to you, and I've been on the biggest sporting stage there is, the Olympics. Mm. You can do it, you know? Mm. And I think the main drive behind me uh, switching. You helped to set up Somalia's first boxing federation you represented yeah. somalia as you say um on on the biggest sporting stage at the olympics and in the women's world championships as well how did it feel for you to represent somalia you know what it was so scary at first i think i i, I spoke about how scary it was in the book like i was frightened you know nobody had, had ever done it before and i was going to be the first and all eyes on me and there was this you know so much pressure on me to do well but the, the, when I was there I remember thinking you know this isn't as bad as, as as what it is like it's okay to be the first if you're paving the way for others to follow it's okay to you know be your own champion it's okay to champion yourself like I said at the beginning it's okay to be yourself and be your own hero basically all of those things are okay if if what you're doing in the process is, is inspiring other people to follow and follow your path and do the same then yeah it's, it's all okay now I think it felt amazing to know that I was inspiring so many people around the world what is coming next for you I, I saw that there's a film being made about your life so four years ago uh, producer named Lee Magaday, who produced The Favourite, won a BAFTA, I think nominated for an Oscar, approached me. She said, I want to make a film about your story. And I said, no chance. It sounds too intrusive and I don't want my, my whole life being out there on the big screen. But as time went on, she actually became a really good friend. You know, she accompanied me to family weddings. She'd come to watch me compete. And I thought, you know what, if anyone is putting this much effort in it doesn't look like it's just a job for her it looks like some and if anyone's going to make a film about me I'd want it to be her so then fast forward to today the script is finished it's an amazing script if you go and watch this I know I'm being biased but the script is amazing the writer Ursula has done such an amazing job and I, I personally can't wait to see it on the big screen. Ramla, so where can we follow you to sort of keep up to date with what you're up to and, and to keep our eyes out for any information about films, etc.? You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter, uh, Ramla Ali, all one word. That's my Instagram. And then I feel like my Twitter is uh, Somali Boxer. And have you got any more fights coming up anytime soon? 
I'm hoping to compete at the end of the year to just you know finish the year on a high and finish the year with a bang. Excellent. Well, thanks so much for joining me, Ramla, and all the best with the book and and your future endeavours. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me, Jen. Welcome to Rated or Dated. Jen, what film did we watch that confirmed everything men thought they knew about women? Uh, well, Mick, Hannah, this week we shoe up doo our way through rip-roaring <laughs> 1996 comedy, The First Wives Club, starring Diane Keaton, Bette Midler and Goldie Hawn as the titular wronged women, featuring support from the likes of Maggie Smith and Sarah Jessica Parker, to name but two. The film was an adaptation of Olivia Goldsmith's book by the same name, though the screenplay was written by, guess what guys, a man, Robert Harling, and it was... No. (laughs) Wasn't it two men? (laughs) Look, I'm coming on to this, and it was directed by, guess what guys, a man, Hugh Wilson. Now, Harling also wrote the screenplay for Steel Magnolias, so don't tell me he doesn't know women, okay? (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, the plot. Four best friends from college marry shit men and lose touch. Now middle-aged. <laughs> Was that the tagline? I, I want to watch it again now. <laughs> They're now middle-aged and they've all been dumped by said awful men and traded in for younger models. Cynthia, played for three minutes or so by Stockard Channing, is so upset about her shit husband marrying Heather Locklear that she jumps to her death from a New York penthouse, but not before writing letters to her estranged besties, guilt-tripping them from beyond the grave for having deigned to build lives without her in them. To be honest, those letters are completely irrelevant because by the time they receive them, they've already been reunited at Cynthia's funeral. Elise is an ageing actress obsessed with her looks and only now... Ageing at, what, 47? She's 45, I thought they said she was. I was 45. I've got a year left. She's now only being offered shite roles. Her husband is boning a teenager and he wants her to pay him alimony and give him half of everything he's helped her build. What a prick. I'm actually joking about that because that is standard procedure in Mm. in a divorce (laughs) and usually how it works other way round. Just one of the, the petards with which this film hoists itself. <laughs> Brenda Morelli is quote-unquote fat and her husband has dumped her for SJP and Annie is just she's a fucking idiot. She's just sl- annoying. She mm. is annoying. She's sleeping with her husband from whom she's separated who is also unbeknownst to her shagging their shared therapist. She's not been struck off the register though because I guess things work a bit differently in the US. I don't know. Who knows? They are all pissed off. And fair play, I would be too. And I can't even pretend that that wouldn't lead me to make bad life choices as a result. But instead of being upset for a bit and going through the motions and ultimately reflecting that they probably don't want to be married to such grotesquely abusive men, they decide to literally make getting back at them their lives work. And hilarity ensues. (laughs) Still, (laughs) if I had Maggie Smith and some dude helping me on that score, maybe I'd do the same. Dame Maggie, for fuck's sake. Oh, she's just, she is just brilliant in every scene. She doesn't do much, but it's all glorious. So, in terms of the box office, well, you can't go wrong with a cast like that, can you? Can you? 
And indeed, they did not. First Wives Club opened at number one in the North American box office, but it's not like going to see Sex and the City 2 out of loyalty to the brand, then leaving really confused and immediately telling everyone you know that it's not really worth a 30-minute train journey to Ipswich for, even if you did get to go to Topshop afterwards. People appear to have continued watching this film. Mm-hmm. In what I actually think was a pretty good year for film, having gone through those releases for this here feature mm. with a fine-tooth comb, I'm going to use the word inexplicably. Inexplicably, it was ranked 11th best film of the year, almost successful, I guess, and the first, like the most successful PG film of the year. In fact, it didn't end there. You can rest easy. In 2016, Goldie Horn had some reservations about a script for a sequel that Netflix was apparently working on, but that didn't stop someone adapting it into a stage show and, indeed, a TV series starring people I have never heard of. What's interesting to me is that, critically speaking, the reception was kind of, meh, it was all right. Reviews of the female leads were generally favourable, but, you know, there wasn't much plot... And I don't want to peek too soon here, but I am surprised that some of the, and I think we'll probably talk about them, very obvious criticisms of the entire fucking premise of the film were not made at the same time. I mean, Gloria Steinem made a cameo in this film, for fuck's sake. And so for me, that is the crux of the issue here. From memory, I kind of thought we were going to be watching something vaguely empowering, and I think that is sort of what they're <laughs> going for. But I don't think that's what we got. Hannah, I can only begin to imagine what you made of this as a first viewing. So, Mick, I'd like to start with you. Do you remember being horrified by this film when you first saw it? I don't remember being horrified by it, but I have seen it before because... And maybe maybe this is it. Maybe we're not its target audience. But my mum really liked this film as a divorced woman wronged by a man. Yeah, she was quite a big fan. Goldie Horn, I think, is a very, very good comic actress and there were moments that she did genuinely make me lol, but the plot is terrible. I did actually, though, want to read you a little something from Susan Faludi's Batlash, which is from about 30 years ago and still horribly relevant today, but brilliant. That, I think, explains what they were maybe trying to do. Trying, not necessarily achieving. So, in 1986... Fortune magazine devoted its cover to the triumph of the trophy wife, the young and doting second helpmate who makes the 50 and 60 year old CEOs feel they can compete. Unlike that selfish first wife who failed to make her husband the focus of her life and in the process loses touch with him and his concerns. And Esquire did a similar thing. So it was in the 80s, early 90s very much seen as de rigueur for a guy in his 50s and 60s to get rid of the old and bring in the new. Actually, to add to that, there was a period, and I can't tell you when it was, but it was when I was growing up, or a young woman, when stories about women taking revenge on their husband by doing things like trashing their car or cutting up all their clothes or going around and putting rotting fish in their mattress were massive stories and people loved them. They were fueled by those sort of take a break style mm. magazines. So yeah, perhaps there was a demand for this that we don't understand and yeah. we would never understand. Yeah. But I would say I thought it was one of the worst things I've ever seen in my life. Genuinely, <laughs> I thought it was terrible. It made me laugh once and precisely once. And that was Bette Midler, obviously. 
when she finds all the bottles in Goldie Horn's house and Goldie Horn says, I had some people round and she said, Ho, guns and roses. Yes. <laughs> and that that's the only thing that made me laugh in this. There's a bit where Goldie Horn lays out like the three sorts of women that she gets to play as an actress. The ingenue, the district attorney, and then like mm. I can't Driving Miss Daisy. The... Yeah. Yeah, driving Miss Daisy. But yet this film creates three types of women. The hysterical woman, which is Diane Caton. The vindictive woman, which is Bette Midler. And the woman who's obsessed by her looks, which is Goldie Hawn. So this film is doing exactly what it's criticising films for doing, which is reducing women into categories. So what you're saying there, Hannah, is it's ticking all the women boxes, right? (laughs) It's just terrible. Not only do they take this revenge on their husband, but they fucking rope Diane Keaton's daughter into it. It's just so unpleasant let's bring you over to our side which is literally what they tell I mean, you not to do she was already on this on her yeah, side she was to be fair. Uh, she was actually trying to get diane keaton to to hate him i mean it does have a very good array of very small cameos by people who've gone on to be brilliant jk simmons j smith cameron leah delario uh timothy oliphant <sighs> <laughs> i didn't find it awful to watch i did not agree with it in any way, shape or form. But I didn't find it awful to watch. I have seen it a couple of times before. I couldn't tell you when I first saw it. And I don't remember ever being, like, horrified by it before. I think the problem is, I think you're absolutely bang on, Mick. I think that there is, like, a kernel of something in there somewhere that is supposed to be, like, up the women. But they've just failed so dismally to deliver that. It's so hypocritical. Well, exactly. They've completely failed to deliver on that because they've done exactly what, as you said, Hannah, exactly what they've sort of tried not to do. And they've also made them such pathetic creatures like the the whole premise of it that they that they literally make it like their their main thing in life to get back at these men. Like, what the fuck? Like, it's still all about them. What annoys me, I think, the most about this film is there's a bit where they're opening the centre and you don't know it's going to be the centre and I've mm. got feelings about that, which I can then go on to. But nonetheless, playing, sisters are doing it for themselves, yeah. right? Over a scene in which men have all the power. Yeah. The men have provided the money. The men are doing the graft. The women can't even hold the plans the right way up, right? And they've got the fucking audacity to play sisters are doing it for themselves over that. There was like an idea of what they wanted to do and I think that that was probably in some ways laudable or whatever and I think the reason they got it so fucking wrong is what I alluded to in the intro is because it's written and, by, and directed by men yeah. why have you done that why have you made a film about empowering or the intention of which is clearly to try and empower women in some way but you've had a man write it and you've had a man direct it that's such a fucking stupid thing to do But the hypocrisy as well, if you look at Sarah Jessica Parker's character, I mean, to me, that just demonstrated how completely rote her acting is. She just plays everything the same. It's like hands open on her chest to demonstrate that she's serious and then point outwards while talking. That's literally what Sarah Jessica Parker does. I disagree with you on that Yeah, I do. (laughs) But anyway, her character, right, is criticised explicitly and implicitly for just being like just this person who's after his money and she's a bit stupid and she's trashy and she's all that stuff and she doesn't deserve it and she's criticised for that, right? Maggie Smith's character is described as having made five really good marriages. What's the difference between those two? The difference is they like Maggie Smith, they don't like this woman. And I just find the hypocrisy in that to be huge because it's not about what you do that makes you worthy of criticism. It's about who you are. And I find that to be 
pretty horrifying. It's kind of equal opportunities though, right? In that yeah. the women come off terribly, but the men come off terribly because basically yeah. the men are seen as passive. They can't help themselves when a younger woman comes along and, you know, they're just going to have to go along with it. And that's equally frustrating. They did get something right though about women because when women are alone together, we do light all of the candles. That's why, tragically, I have lost three best friends to fire. <laughs> and at the same point, women, great, right? Not that, not Diane Keaton's mum, though, right? Diane Keaton's mum's treated like she's like a fucking idiot. And there's a point at which when she says, she why don't you try apologising by writing her a note and sending her a nice hanging plant, right? And she's like, oh, mum. And I'd just like to say, if anyone fucks me off, a nice note and hanging plant and we will be fine. She does want her to get back together with that horrible man, though, so she yeah. is a bit of an idiot, to be fair. She is quite controlling, which is why Diane Keaton's character has no self-esteem, I think. Still a woman's fault. I don't think they right. did that very well. I didn't I didn't really pick up on the low self-esteem vibes coming from the mum. But yeah, no, you're, you're right, still a woman's fault. But she has a moment of clarity, doesn't she, Keaton, at one point in this, where she says, why are we doing this? Why are we doing yeah. this? Shouldn't we be doing something else? And the other two talk her out of it and basically say... This is like a great thing to do. And then the film sort of, I think, realises it's not a great thing to do and takes this sudden just sideways step that's done with this really weird voiceover that basically you can summed up by saying once we'd had revenge, revenge didn't seem so important anymore. And they open a centre for women in crisis, which seems to be a way to tie it all in a nice bow that hasn't particularly been earned through the rest of the plot. I didn't mind that as an ending, but obviously it's just not delivered well because then they all have to fucking wear white and dance and sing. But, like, I didn't mind the ending being, like, actually we've done something, like, a bit kind of altruistic. It kind of annoyed me because, obviously, it's a positive thing to happen, but Mm. I was annoyed with the film and then I was like, oh, now you've done something that's quite good. And I was really annoyed (laughs) with you. (laughs) I think any male listeners should know that uh, You Don't Own Me is actually the song that they teach us when they tell the boys that they're going to talk about periods. They just let us all know it. (laughs) So that when we we progress and graduate to our white skirt suits... We've got the the moves down. None of them are sympathetic characters. They just seem really grasping. So therefore, you're not really on their side. And obviously, women in films don't have to be sympathetic characters. We don't have to relate to them. But when the whole premise is that they're going to get even, and it's like, okay, Bette Midler, you've just kidnapped your husband and put him in the trunk of a car and threatened him with the mafia. Any ideas on how your son might feel if he finds out about this? Because that seems pretty selfish. Yeah. Also, not sure were I a lesbian how happy I would be with the representation <laughs> mm. of lesbians in this film, yeah. to be honest. The lesbian thing um, is interesting. That is yeah. worth mentioning. Just used to annoy your dad? I don't know. It's so throwaway and glib. Yeah. And, and also yeah. the scene where they go to the lesbian bar. It's your bird from Orange is the New Black, isn't it? L- Leah Delario, yeah. yeah. Again, I wasn't really sure what they were trying to do with that kind of... I'm not going to call it a storyline... Would this have been like seen as comparatively progressive in 1996, or is this actually just really offensive? I, I don't it felt know. like almost as bad as like when you know. I mean, and I'm not sure that they ever did go into a gay bar in Police Academy. No, no, they did that kind of vibe going on so, about it. I was just about same to say. Director. So the director is the same guy. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. And there's a scene where they go into the Blue Oyster Cult bar, I think, mm. and it's a gay bar, and it's basically the flip of that. In a lesbian bar instead of a gay bar when they're all in, like, your stereotypical leather fetish gear. 
basically. And it's it feels like he's just rehashed that scene. Hugh, for what this are you film. doing? <laughs> Why? Why has yeah. he rehashed it? So, it was so good the first time. It went so well the first time. <laughs> Ladies, that is equal opportunity for you. Thank God. I would like to know your biggest shout fuck off at the screen moment. So now I had two. Hannah's already mentioned them. And I was just like, oh, I actually, what I shouted each time was women, eh? One of them was holding the plans the wrong way up. <laughs> Three of them, women, eh? And the other one yeah. was the screeching as the window cleaner thing plummeted to the ground. And not being able to control any sort of machinery women eh yeah. oh, my my biggest one without question is at the end when it's revealed that bet midler's gonna get back together with her yeah, husband yeah that would be what it for me yeah fuck? you've literally yeah. just like had him in a fucking abattoir like threatening to do and now you're gonna go what i don't see you two i don't understand why you wouldn't want to get back with a man who has a permanent five o'clock shadow i was like has that man ever not had a five o'clock shadow he looks like homer simpson okay probably don't really need to ask guys what 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 do you make of first wives club i think we need to bring in a new category for hannah it's rated dated or hated (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) yeah i mean obviously dated it was terrible it was absolutely terrible mick dated yeah, I'd, I'd agree with that. I will say quite briefly, though, for all of the obsession about women's looks in this, Stockard Channing looks fucking amazing. Nice lipstick she was wearing, I thought. Women, eh? Mm. Uh, <laughs> whose go is it next? It is me. And we are going to delve into the world of male modelling as we revisit Zoolander. For a moment, you were going to say Magic Mike. I thought for a terrifying moment. <laughs> I've never seen Magic Mike. Oh, it's terrible. It's terrible. It's really bad. Says a woman who's been to see Magic Mike XL on stage 12 times. Hey, Dunleavy. Is there a stage? Yeah. Oh, there is, because we used to walk past yeah, it. Yeah, Samantha when we Baines did our shows. was like the, the host of yeah. it or something like that. No, no, obviously I haven't. Now, could we all walk away just like laughing and like you don't singing and dancing? Me. Standard issue for all women.